With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Teferit Talk. I'm Melissa Studdard and this is the Blog Talk Radio Show for Teferit, a journal of spiritual literature, where we publish writing and engage in dialogue to promote peace in the individual and in the world. We're thrilled that you're with us right now and we would love for you to also join our global online community. You can find it at www.teferitjournal.com. There, in addition to interacting with other members, reading their writings, and posting your own, you can subscribe to the journal, which in each issue presents beautiful, spiritually and intellectually compelling poetry, prose, and art. This evening's fabulous guest is author, poet, life coach, and creative writing teacher, Molly Bisk. Fisk's books include the poetry collections, The More Difficult Beauty and Listening to Winter, and a collection of radio essays, Blow-Drying a Chicken, Observations from a Working Poet. Of her writings, John Updike has stated, Molly's voice is crisp and decided, yet relaxed and just close enough somehow, and the pieces are all impeccably shaped and written, fearless, clear-eyed work. This has appeared for TEDx events and in the PBS documentary, The Loss of Nameless Things, and she is the recipient of many fellowships and honors, including grants from the National Endowment for the Arts, the California Arts Council, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, as well as a Dogwood Prize, the Robertson Jeffords Torhouse Prize in Poetry, and more. She is also Poet Laureate of KVMRFM, where she can be heard weekly. As well, I'm delighted to introduce to you Tavera's publisher, Donna Bear-Stein, who will be joining me as co-host for this and future episodes of Tavera Talk. Hi, Molly. Hi, Donna. How are you two tonight? Hi, Melissa. Thanks. Very well, thank you. Uh, we're so delighted to have you, Molly. Um, I wanted to start by asking you the subtitle for your book, Blood Drying a Chicken, um, which I love Blood Drying a Chicken, <laughs> um, but the subtitle, Observations from a Working Poet. Um, I know you said before when discussing the book that poets observe things differently. So I wanted to see if you could talk about what that means to observe the world as a poet. Um. I think that poets are given permission. You know, we're sort of outcasts of the culture. We don't have to uh, wear lipstick, and we don't even have to wear berets and sandals anymore. So we have a little more leeway. Um, And I think a lot of poets are just good at noticing things. We're good at seeing the stuff that other people have moved a little too fast to notice. 
So, and it, you know, I think it depends on how you were raised. Also, my mother was a painter, and she would, when I was a little kid, she'd take me outside and say, look at the underside of the leaf, not just the front, but the back is really pretty. And um, mm-hmm. She'd ask us all to count how many colors of green we could see on a walk and stuff like that. So well, I thought that's amazing <laughs> about looking at the underside of the leaf. What a what a wonderful person to have as a mom. Yeah, yeah. It was very. I didn't know I was going to be a poet, but it turned out to be quite useful. Wow. Well, that that actually brings me to the next question. I I did read somewhere that you started writing at the age of thirty five, and yeah. has a way of dealing with trauma. So I would love to hear your thoughts about poetry as a method for healing in general, but also specifically about the role that poetry played in your own recovery process. I was not, um, you know, I have a college degree. I'm sure I took some English classes. Um, I don't remember much about them. And the only real exposure to poetry I had was that my mother would read a lot of Robert Frost when she got lonely for New England, we were out in California. Mm. Um, So I had this one reference point for poetry, and I didn't know much of anything about contemporary poetry until someone handed me a Mary Oliver poem that was, this was before the internet, so she gave me a Xeroxed copy and I put it on my icebox. Um, Mary Oliver was probably the first contemporary poet I'd ever read. do you remember which poem that was? Oh, yes, it was Wild Geese. Okay. Thank One you. of her two very popular ones among right. middle-aged American women. Um, and when I started to go through the trauma that you're talking about is the recovery of memories of childhood uh, sexual abuse. And when I started to go through having those memories come back, which I originally thought was an acid flashback, and that seemed highly unfair because I had not taken very much acid. Um, <laughs> I didn't. I just didn't know how to talk about what, what what I was experiencing, and it seemed as though the language for it was in this one particular poem. So I went and got a book of Mary Oliver's and read the book, and then I just tried to write something myself. And I don't. I wouldn't say it was very good. But about two or three weeks after writing a lot, uh, my plumber came over to fix the kitchen sink and looked at the poem that I had put on my icebox and said, who wrote this? And I said, I did. And he said, oh, you should keep going. Uh, The reason to pay attention to plumbers in California is that most of them have a Ph.D. in English. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's great. Well, I read somewhere that you you also said that um, whenever you get stuck, you always go back to Mary Oliver. And I was kind of wondering what that looks like for you. I mean, how does she, you know, is it just reading her or do you recite her? I mean, how does she get you unstuck? Because I thought that was really cool. (laughs) I think it's the, um, it can be anything. I've memorized a couple of her poems so I could recite one to myself and that can help or just reading them off the page, usually out loud. I just get back into that rhythm of conversation that she is so good at. And Mm -hmm. her poems are so well-crafted, and she's always telling you there were 80 drafts and stuff, which appalls me, because the most I've ever done is six. Um, (laughs) But she just has mastered a kind of conversational 
tone and is very good at going from the collective you that she likes to use. You know, you do not have to be good mm-hmm. out into the world and describing something from the natural world and then coming back to that you. Um, I just mm-hmm. feel as though maybe because that's where I started, hearing her voice again can open that door that I have to poetry. Mm, that's nice. Um, Donna, did you, it seemed to me like you had a question that was related to that. I do, and, and I actually also just wanted to, you mentioned, um, Molly, the saying that Mary Oliver's poems showed this wonderful rhythm of conversation, and I thought that your, um, the book of, of the radio essays, um, um, Blow Drawing a Chicken, also had this wonderful rhythm of conversation. It felt like you were sitting across from me and chatting as okay. a friend, um, and you used mm-hmm. the you as well, certainly beautifully. Um, and Melissa had asked you about using writing in your own healing, and I know also in that book you talk about using writing in workshops with cancer patients right. and how there was a book you mentioned by maybe Pennebaker yeah. um, about how writing helps us heal, and I wondered if you would be willing to say a few words about that. Sure. Um, Jamie Pennebaker is a, a sociologist, I think, from one of the Texas universities, and he wanted to know whether writing, which anecdotally we all think is very good for you, really had a a scientific basis in healing. So he did a bunch of experiments, probably now 25 years ago, and discovered that writing, if you are doing it using both sides of your brain, um, really does help boost your immune system for about six weeks after you've I think his experiment was four 20-minute sessions in four days. Um, and he tracked all these people's health of service attendance, and then he did blood work and stuff like that. So using both sides of your brain, and I'm not sure how he decided that was the reason it worked, nor am I entirely sure how to get people to use both sides of their brains just as a writing teacher because I'm not a doctor or a scientist. But what I do with my cancer patients is have them go back and forth between what is logical and um, as, as much left-brained as we can figure out, you know, something describing something that's precise and clearly defined. And then I have them write about their emotions about it, which it seems to me would bring in the right side of the brain. So mm-hmm. we do a lot of laughing and a lot of crying. Mm-hmm. And I asked them what they were to the prom and things like that. And since a lot of them uh-huh. are in their 60s and 70s, that brings up a lot of laughter. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, oh, go ahead, please. It's just been really fruitful. I, I've been teaching this one class for 15 years. And we've lost some people, but we've also got people who've been in the class that whole time. Um, and to see them 15 years out after their cancer experiences is, is incredibly wonderful. I just love I love being in a population of people who went through something hard and lived, and are able to just get right down into things. They're not um, they're not pretending in any way. Mm-hmm. And do you meet with them weekly or? Yes, in eight-week sessions, and then we take a couple weeks off. Uh, and you have, like, writing in-class or in-group writing exercises and then discuss, talk, and It's really share. just writing and sharing and writing and sharing, yeah. 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 
Yeah, it's not, there's nothing in there about craft or punctuation. Right. That's wonderful. Yeah, sounds wonderful. Um, Molly, I would love to make sure that our listeners get to experience your writing firsthand. Would you read one of your essays for us? I would be delighted. Mm, great. This is called Sentimental Value. Today I went to my mother's house for the final time. She's been dead for six years, four months, and three days, not that I'm counting. When she died, we were bereaved and unorganized and left a lot of her stuff, the things we didn't immediately want or have to deal with, in the garage, the attic, the linen closet, and one of my brothers moved in on top of it all. Now that it's time to sell the house and my brother has moved out, the rest of us congregated one last time partly to sort things and claim any Tupperware containers or mismatched linen napkins we might want, and partly to say goodbye. I devoutly wish we had dealt with this junk six years ago. When I got there, the house looked like a bomb had gone off, scattering papers, pot lids, and hand towels in every direction. Some of it was anonymous and therefore disposable, but there were dangerous pitfalls. It's amazing what happens to middle-aged persons suddenly faced with the pale green washcloth they used in childhood, little black penguins still marching across its hem. Objects I could not have dredged from my memory at gunpoint suddenly matter more to me than my left arm. Try to dissuade your parents from dying. You are not yet old enough to deal with the family face cloths. You are never going to be old enough. To be fair, my mother died on the youngish side, and by the time she realized the chemo wasn't working, she didn't have energy left to purge the garage. Many parents are able to do several rounds of divestiture, so by the time you have to cope with odds and ends, most of them have already been sent to a third world nation by the goodwill. I took some things here and there, a battered silver bowl that none of us had ever seen before, fabric my mother had never cut or sewn. Some things I bade goodbye to, the penguin face cloth, which was shredding at one end and would have looked ridiculous framed on my wall. The plum tree my mother had loved and the views out three of her windows at nearby wooded hills. I made my farewell to the frayed purple ribbon attached to the overhead light's pull cord above the washing machine. I tied that ribbon up there when I was 28, so my five-foot-three-inch mother would stop risking her neck, climbing an unsteady ladder to reach it. The thing about memory is that it doesn't mean anything to anyone but you. It's almost lonely if you think about it. My siblings don't react to the same things I do, and likewise they have relationships with stuff in that house that I know nothing about. It's not a fancy house and the layout is peculiar, so the new owners will probably tear it down and build on the footprint. Maybe they'll rip out the plum tree, who knows? The pull cord and its ribbon, hanging down in front of the washing machine, will definitely be history. Except when, every once in a while, I remember them. Mm. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> My favorite part is when you say it's amazing what happens to middle-aged person suddenly faced with the pale green washcloth they used in childhood. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, and, you know, to dissuade your parents from dying. Uh, you know, 
your humor is wisdom. <laughs> it's really wonderful. I'd love to know more about the radio program that the essays were written for and also what your audience is like because I feel such a strong sense of community in the writings. It's a very um, community-based place here. I live in a small mining town in California, and the radio station is its not a college town. It's one of those stations that's sort of like a college station. It's really a good radio station. And there are probably 18,000 people in the local area, and then we probably reach another 4,000 people down in the Sacramento Valley. So it's not a huge population that hears me, but everybody in town knows who I am, and they always say, that was a great poem you read last night when instead it was an essay. Uh, <laughs> and I don't mind, because if they think it's a poem, it's good. Um, and I, I was asked just off the cuff by the news department, I think in 2004, if I wanted to do some radio commentary, and I didn't know anything about it, and so I said, Sure. And they gave me no parameters whatsoever except for time. I could write about anything I wanted, and except I couldn't use the FCC banned swear words. Mm. Um, and I was kind of petrified, and I wrote five or six essays right away so I would have some spares. Um, and it's just turned into this really wonderful... Um, outlet for me in a way you know poetry I feel as though poetry has um, a lot of history and I wasn't trained in it I've learned a lot of it by myself or from my first poetry teacher Dorian Locks I learned a lot of poems in her living room mm -hmm. but I, I feel as though it's it's much more of a, a serious matter and some of these radio essays are like recess I can just you know haul off and say whatever I feel like uh, so there's something liberating about them. It's interesting, though, that people think of them as poems. Do you notice similarities yourself between maybe the structure or the rhythms or anything that, um, you know, that, I mean, do you notice more similarities or more differences between your poetry I, and your... I think I notice the differences. I think that they have me in their minds as a poet, so everything I say is mm -hmm. going to be poetry. <laughs> and you really can't complain about that. Um, they're not, you know, they're taken into a different world for three minutes, and mm -hmm. I think that people also love to be read to. So mm -hmm. there's that, that aspect of magic that's involved. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. It it does sound like you have an an, an incredible community where you live and that you spend a lot of or I don't know a lot, but some time at the cafe, coffee shop, and yep, yep. and with friends and neighbors and weddings, et cetera, et cetera. And and I was really curious reading it and and listening to you now talk about the community with the radio show. Like um, sometimes in our culture, we think of writers as introverts, and I, I wondered how you balance that. I guess I'm curious specifically: Do you do your writing in a coffee shop, or do you socialize and then go and retreat and do your writing in private? I was raised doing my homework at the kitchen table mm -hmm. with, with the dishwasher on and usually Neil Young or Elton John on the, on the stereo. Uh -huh. and my siblings milling around, and there were some dogs and a couple of cats, and my parents were probably there someplace. 
Well, I feel very comfortable in a big, loud place trying to do something mental and specific. Uh-huh, okay. But having said that, the coffee shop does, doesn't work anymore because everybody knows I'm there. So now my friends all come in and want to have coffee. Yeah, uh-huh. Now sometimes I'll go to IHOP or someplace where none of my friends are uh-huh. and do a little writing there, or I'll go to a nearby town where I, people don't know who I am. Uh-huh. Um, but a lot of the time I just sit on my own sofa or, or go to the river and sit on a rock. Mm-hmm. Um, I I'm, I like the outside noise. I mean, mostly I just like to know that I'm not alone. Yes. Other people in the world. Yes, that's and a real good thing, yes. Yeah, after I've had a hit of that every morning at the cafe, I can come home and write all day long if I feel like it. Yes, yeah. You know, sort of related to this, um, I've I've heard you say that some actually really eloquent things about why it's important for writers to have downtime and um, not, for instance, do too many events. I think you said you were invited to do 40 or 50 events a year and you accept four. Uh And could you talk a little bit about that, about um, how downtime even though it seems like you're not doing anything, sort of feeds into the writing in an important way? I think that writing, I think that any art, but I can only say this as a writer, but I've talked to lots of other artists about this, I think you need a certain level of um, thinking into yourself in order to be expressive. And if you're running around doing things, even the wonderful things, you're not able to sink into yourself. I think it requires solitude. It often, for me, requires nature. And mm-hmm. it's often, for me, a longer process than I ever could imagine. So if I don't get at least about an hour and a half every day of noodling around, not doing anything important and being by myself... I start to feel as though I'm overdrawn in my account. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if I've been away traveling, I need to come home and really settle into my own spaces again. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think that, you know, certainly this modern world doesn't allow for that for most people. Everybody's got jobs and then they've got kids and then they've got this and that and the other thing and people just don't spend any time with themselves at all. Um, but I think if you're going to be able to produce the art, the writing that you want to, you have to sit with yourself and say hello for a long time. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. Thank you. I actually, if I could, I actually have open here on my computer the your, Molly's manifesto uh, uh-huh. from your book, which ties into what you're just saying. I want you, you wrote, I want to help people be more fully themselves, find their core strengths and beliefs, and hold to those against the deep distractions of our culture. Um, I think the work of a life is distilling oneself down to the richest possible essence, which is what you talked about, and and so. Um, I love hearing you say it and reinforcing the importance of this. I just think we can't get anywhere without it. And and it is a big fight against the culture in the sense that, you know, people are always saying, oh, you know, artists and writers are radicals. And we have to be. The rest of the world is about commerce and it's heading in another direction. 
Mm-hmm. You know, um, I want to make sure that we have time to hear a poem from you too. So would you would you share one with us? Yes. Ah, fabulous. Now I'm going to share this particular one for two reasons. Speaking of commerce, I won $1,000 for it. So Yay! Totally fond of it. And also, since I wrote it, I started to learn how to paint. So now I read it and I think, how did I know all that stuff? But I wasn't painting yet. It's called Washington Square, New York, 1941. When Edward Hopper finishes his painting for the night, sets the boar bristles to soak in turpentine, wipes the thick, not-yet-crusted-over drips from his smock with a blue rag, and tips his palette up to incubate tomorrow's luck. He isn't thinking of the greenish light from a street lamp, how it hits plate glass and fractures through it, or the counter's corner in an all-night city diner. Most of the time he is just hungry, already smelling the stew his wife likes to make from white beans and bacon. His eyes lose focus, and his other senses, so long ignored in deference to saturated color, come alive, more vivid now because of their confinement. How clear the little click as the lamp's wick sinks below its silver mouth, scritch of boot heels on the tile stair when he descends. He inhales the evening, the butcher's bloody work, stale malt that drifts from a window. The snowy world receives him. Flakes melt and run down his cheeks. <laughs> wow, that's so visceral and sensory. <laughs> and this was before you started painting. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Okay. You know, I, I like thinking of it in relation to your description of yourself as a working poet because this is very much an image of him as a working painter. <laughs> you know? I love about work. I ask my students to write about it. You know, I'm always reading Phil Levine. There's just lots of kinds of work that I don't think is used enough as subject matter, and it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. Will you tell us a little bit more about the prize that this won? That's exciting. That was the Dogwood Prize, and um, I had just begun writing in syllabics. I worked a little bit with the poet Molly Peacock about a manuscript that I had. Um, actually, it was from it was this manuscript, The More Difficult Beauty. Um, and she had said, I think you should try to use form a little bit more. And she's a more formal poet than many. And, so, and I'd never even thought about syllabics before. So this is one of my earliest syllabic poems. And I submitted it to a contest that I knew that Marilyn Nelson was judging. And I know that she's a more formal poet than many. Um, and it was a nice thing then to win because I got to beat her and make friends with her. and It was fun to have $1,000 around the house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and to get $1,000 for a poem of all things. <laughs> I, once, I think I said it was $41 a word or something like that. I figured that part out, but I can't remember <laughs> the exact number. <laughs> Great. Well, Donna, did you? I want to make sure you have the opportunity to ask the questions you want to ask as well. Was, was there anything else that was really important that you wanted to know? Um, a couple things. Um, you mentioned swimming a lot, um, and 
I know there's there's nothing literally spiritual in these essays, and yet in in the concern for other human individuals and in the concern for the world, there's there's a spiritual element, I believe. And I wondered if you see swimming or anything else as a as a particular daily practice in your life, or or weekly practice, or um, or is, I definitely see swimming as a daily practice, but only in the summer. Because uh-huh. I'm swimming in a lake. Uh-huh. That and sounded wonderful, actually. So I just want all of you to come here and swim with me once it gets warm. <laughs> right now it's wetsuit weather, but in a couple of weeks we'll be in there. That's so great that you do that. Um, and then I also read it said you have a walking desk now. I was curious how that's working out. That's been actually a, um, somewhat annoying. I, I made this desk. I, 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 I sort of produced this desk. Um, I got someone to give me a treadmill, and I got someone to make me a little tray that fits over the controls where I can put my keyboard and my mouse. And then I lifted up my monitor on a big cardboard box and turned it sideways so that instead of sitting at the chair, I'm standing on the treadmill. And it's taken me a while to figure out how to get the treadmill to go with the tray on top of it, but I have now figured that out. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you, are you liking it now, Jennifer? I'm liking it, and I, I don't use it for work work. If I need to think straight, I need to be quieter. Okay. But for Facebook, on which I spend way too much time, it's perfect. So now if you see me on Facebook, you know that I'm walking You're on your walking. Slowly. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of well, doing exercises so this time. <laughs> right, right. And, and <laughs> I also wanted to ask you, when I was – delighted when I read the blurb on your book from John Updike, and I was thinking, wow, what a coup. And I wondered what um, what he, he was your uncle, I learned later in the book, and obviously loved your writing, and I wondered what he was like as an uncle. Oh, also, it also connected because you talk a lot about gardening, and I once had a dream where John Updike was working in my garden. So oh, it was kind dream. of a nice uh-huh. Um, I think so, that's the only garden I he ever he was like as an uncle and as a fellow writer. Well, I would never say he was a fellow writer. I would say he was an amazing writer, and he paid almost no attention to his nieces and nephews or their writing. Uh-huh. Um, okay. that, quote, that quote is from a letter he sent me. Okay. Um, after I sent him some of the essays in an auditory CD format. Uh-huh. And it was completely out of the blue, and it was the first time he'd ever complimented me for anything. Uh-huh. And um, when I was putting this book together, I wrote to him and said, um, so that was a stunning letter, and I'm you know, amazed, and I'm so happy that you like these pieces. Would it be all right to put it on my book jacket? And he wrote back and said, well, what are famous uncles for anyway? Aww. Of course you can put it on your book jacket. That's sweet. That's <laughs> so nice. It was very sweet. Yeah. 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 And it, and it was very it was a you know stunning and adorable to be noticed after many years of just sort of being his niece. You know he was he was not. Um, uh, let's see what am I going to say? He was very very much in his own world as a writer. He didn't teach a lot. He didn't mentor people that much. He didn't do a lot of blurb writing. I mean I think he was really following his own path and not seeing that much of the social mm-hmm. writerly niceties. Um, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I was thinking when I saw the blurb that I I, I don't remember seeing a lot of blurbs from him, so I don't know if he did or not. But I think he blurbed Billy Collins once, but I'm not positive. Huh. He, he certainly wrote about some of his work. Uh-huh. Um, well. Um, and having him around, I mean, we had these... It, the family, It wasn't. he wasn't just the star and then the rest of the family kind of listened to him. I had two very smart, sassy parents and then John and his first wife, Mary, who's my mother's older sister. Um, so we grew up at a dinner table full of repartee and goofiness and bad puns and stuff. That's wonderful. And speaking of puns, you also say in your book that every year you choose a word for the year, and I wondered what your word is this year. This year it's empty. Empty. And I meant that not in the sense of being um, not full of stuff, but really more in the sense, the Buddhist sense of it, where you're available to be filled. Yes. Yeah. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. To receive. Yeah. Um, One of the things that I noticed in your poems and your essays is that you have this really incredible sense of self-acceptance. And to me, it's just remarkable and beautiful, and and it's really even instructive. And um, I began to kind of wonder if this is something, because I know you're a life coach, is this something that you help other people with in your life coaching? Yes. Yeah, definitely. I don't I think I came to that through somewhat through finding out that my life as I really thought it existed was wrong when I recovered these memories about child abuse. Mm-hmm. Um I'd been the golden girl of my family, the eldest child, smart, did all these things and just was restless and couldn't settle down and figure out I just felt like something was missing. And when it turned out that this was what I was searching for, I was horrified and I got thrown out of my family for a little while and lots of people said they didn't believe me. And I sort of went through an experience of rejection like nothing I had ever even thought of knowing about. So I think some of my self-acceptance started there where mm-hmm. I was the only one I had to rely on. And if I was either going to start relying on myself or I was going to off myself somehow. And the poetry really helped me not do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that's really where things started. Mm-hmm. I can see how that would be the case, that you would you would have to accept yourself, you know, when you're being rejected at that level. And I just, I mean... There are just so many places where you take some trait that someone might refer to as a weakness or something, and you point it out as charming. And <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> procrastination. I was, I was charmed by it, you know. <laughs> and then this unabashed femininity, which is like, um, which actually felt like a really strong sort of feminism, where you said you, you can't stand to bowl with an ugly colored ball because it makes you not bowl well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> This is who I am. I'm yeah, it is. <laughs> no one else yeah. thinks this way necessarily. <laughs> yeah. well, I think that's one of the reasons people love the essays so much, <laughs> really. Um, well, also you said that 
and I, I saw this in many places, that you used to be a type A personality. Yes. <laughs> so I would love to know more about that. How did you learn to not be a type A? Um, it was boring. I, I mean, I went to Harvard. I got a business degree. I was for a while a banker in Chicago, and... Um, I just wasn't having any fun. And the, I'd look at the older bankers, the people higher up in the hierarchy and who were older than I was, and I'd think, I don't really want to be like you. I want to be like the woman who comes in here with her baby in a stroller and teaches us how to not write in bankerese, but instead to write in normal English. So um, at some point, my interest in making lots of money and working for a big corporation to see what that was like just all fell away. I was just I I totally felt as though the people I was working with were speaking their first language in finance and I was speaking a second or third. And, and how I, old were you when you left that world? I went into it when I was twenty nine and left when I was about thirty three, thirty four. Mm-hmm. So it was right before I found poetry and poetry was definitely my native language. Mm-hmm. But I what just have, <laughs> have not known it. Well, speaking of poetry, I this is sort of a difficult question, and you may not be able to answer it, but I want to give it a shot anyway. <laughs> I just, okay. I want to read you a few lines from one of your poems, and I was, I mean, I just absolutely love these lines. They're stunning. But what I want to try to ask you is. I was fascinated by the mental process that went on to create these lines, and I wanted to see if you could sort of remember what was going on that, that made you make this connection or how you wrote these lines. So I'll read them to you, and then, um, and then we'll see what happens. <laughs> okay. So, words are still a comfort even as age removes them from our grasp. Daybreak, for instance. How did breaking enter someone's mind when light crested the highest hill? flooding the world with yellow. I like to think it was a woman at her baking, one who glanced up as that gold lit the dust of flour, the china bowl, to watch the sun's yoke spreading out across the hill, unbroken, daylight pouring now into the jagged shell halved in her open palm. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in this, this connection. I mean, I just keep seeing in your writing how you, you take these things that it seems like no one else would think to put together like a turn signal and world peace. <laughs> you know, and so I'm looking at this and saying, how did you look at the sun and think of daybreak and then go to Yolk and I don't know, I'm just wondering what the process was for you. Um, so two things. One is I I've, I think probably for a year I was mulling over that question. What on earth, why does day have break in it? What is going on there? What does that have to do with anything? I mean, and I understand day breaks over the hills or whatever, that it might be an old-fashioned construction, but I I am a literal person, and I was looking at it in a literal way and kind of chewing on it, I think, not really making any decisions about it, but sort of thinking, that's really odd. You know, why, who named that anyway? (laughs) <laughs> and the second thing is I was trying to write a poem that was longer than one page. And it was driving me crazy. I could write lots of little vignettes and put them together in sections and get to past one page. But I couldn't just write a poem and keep going. 
And this was a poem that came out when I, I was just furious about it. And I sat down at my computer one day, and almost all of my poems are written by hand in notebooks. But this time I sat down at the computer, and I just started going. And I mm-hmm. followed my brain wherever it was trying to go, and I got to the end of the first page, and I kept going, and I was very happy. So I don't really, you know, a lot of the time I'll sort of open a door in my head, and whatever comes out is what comes out. I don't feel as though much of my work is very planned, except in the sense that I might have been mulling something over for a year, and suddenly it will appear in a poem. I love that you were in your head. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's... People talk about channeling, and I wouldn't know, but I feel as though there's a way that I just don't know what I'm going to say until I start writing, and then I say things I didn't know I was going to say, and they're amazing or not. You should see the bad ones. I mean, there's a lot of bad ones. But the process is so much fun, and it's so surprising that I feel as though I will never need to... I'll just never get bored. I'll I'll always have this way of looking at the world that startles me as well as everybody else mm, and is a lot love. of fun. Mm. Well, okay, we're getting so close to the end and we're about to run out of time, so I'd love to know if you have any other publications or events coming up, a uh, website you'd like to point people to, just anything you want to announce in closing. Sure. If you would like to work with me, the best way is to do that online. And I teach these five-day-long intensives called Poetry Boot Camp. The next one is on June 8th. And you can reach me at molly at mollyfisk.com. Molly with a Y, Fisk with no E, to find out more about that. Um, I'm bringing on another book of essays, and it is called Using Your Turn Signal Promotes World Peace. Oh, great. And that'll be in early August. And my website is completely under construction, but next week you can go find it. It's mollyfisk.com. And I'm also all over Facebook, so if you want to say hello on Facebook, I'd love to meet new people and talk poetry and all that stuff. Great. Thank you. I think best title maker ever. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me on your show. I've had such a lovely time. Oh, Oh, I I did too. Me too. And Donna, thank you too. It's just thank you, so Melissa, for letting me participate. It's been a pleasure talking to you both. Yeah, oh, now we'd have to have like, tea somewhere and swim <laughs> and swim exactly. Um, yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, good night, and I look forward to talking to you both again. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you, Molly. Thank you so much. Before we close, I'd like to remind our listeners that at our website, www.teferitjournal.com, you can subscribe, donate, or purchase single issues of Teferit Journal and find out about upcoming events. While you're at the site, be sure to also check out the new Teferit Talk book. It's a collection of our best interviews from the first year of Teferit Talk Radio and is available for purchase at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other bookstores, as well as at the website where we offer a free copy monthly through our giveaway. I'd like to thank producer and associate editor R.J. Jeffries, 
and contributing editor and assistant producer Udo Hintz for their work every month in helping the show to run smoothly. Our next interview will be with novelist Richard Bosch on May 26th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We hope you'll join us then, and in the meantime, we wish you peace, love, happiness, and fulfilling work. Until then, goodbye. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.